0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Chapter 12. We got one verse last week. Many of you commented on that, and I said, boy, you should have heard what I left out. We would have got even more. But what it is about is about... um, Dale Carnegie's "How to Win Friends and Influence People." Now, Mr. Carnegie went at it from the pragmatic, is this is the way that you work the system to get this. Not bad. The Bible talks about it is this is the kind of person there is that everybody loves them and everybody respects them and would like to follow them. And so it's kind of the a priori of uh, how to win friends. And how to influence people. Because we'd all love our kids to be like that. We'd like to be like that. like to have the kind of person that people love. The kind of person that people listen to and follow. Like Christ. So if you look at verse 24. That was your first point. Is that this fellow has a biblical work ethic. That the hand of the diligent. He gets promoted. He gets the raises he gets trusted. Diligent meaning that he has excellence. He works with honesty, with obedience, with cooperativeness, and with reliability. And that's the guy that when you find him, the girl that when you find him, you want to put them in a position of authority because they're going to make you successful. Amen. Not hard to figure out. That's why Nebuchadnezzar looked at Daniel who proved himself better than all the youths around him and said, I want you right next to me. And if you got any friends, bring them with you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I want your buddies. Do I believe like you do? No, I don't. But I have nobody as good as you guys. Fellow named Pharaoh looked at a fellow named Joseph and said, since God has informed you, there is no one as wise as you. And so I want you up in this position with me. Um, Cyrus to Mordecai, I want you in a position right next to me because you're the most loyal, faithful guy that I've gotten. Um, Artaxerxes had a guy named Nehemiah. I want you to be my wine taster. I mean, I want you to check this grenade, see if it works. Okay. I want you right there because I can trust you. I don't believe what you believe, but I have nobody as good as you. Are you with me? That's called a work ethic. You've earned that right. Excellence is never obsolete. You young studs, you're going out there to find a job. You do it as, quote, unto the Lord rather than men and somebody is going to hire you because you're going to make them successful. You just need a chance. Well, there's something else here that will make you very winsome. It's in verse uh, 25, and that is when you are sympathetic or you are sensitive, or you are caring, or you are aware of the feelings of those around you. We have a word called pathos that means pain. Sympathos means you feel the same pain. When somebody hurts, you're not oblivious to them, that you feel for them. Well, it says in 25 that anxiety in a man's heart or worry weighs it down. It depresses them. When you have worry or anxiety, you have a concern with no visible resolution. You dig? That is what anxiety is. When you have a concern that has no visible resolution, if you get sick, but you know that this medicine will really help you, you're not as worried you got to the doctor. But when you have something that has no visible resolution, it's like a horse fly around you and you can't rest. Um, you start doing what's called catastrophizing. You ever do that? Catastrophizing is when you carry something out to its worst possible conclusion. Sarah, I want you to lie about being my wife. Say you're my sister. Why? Because there's no fear of God in this place. And you're the best looking 80-year-old out there. I just threw that in there. And they're going to see me and see you, and they're going to kill me and take you as wife. And all of God's plans are going to go kapoey. And so I'm going to need you to lie. It's called catastrophizing. You ever do that? Where you just imagine what's going to happen. Barney was good at it on Andy of Mayberry. Yeah, he was good at catastrophizing. Mayberry's about to become a sin town if we let these litterers go on. Okay. And so whenever the heart is weighed down, a good word makes it glad. Not that you figured it out, but somebody from the outside comes in and tells you something. In spite of the pain you feel, he tells you something good. The Bible says, like a cool breeze on a hot day is a good word from a distant land. When somebody just comes and lifts up your heart. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstance. When somebody knows just the right word to come next to you and lift you up. Uh, Sometimes it might be giving you a perspective perspective. When they come and they put their hand on their shoulder and go, You know, I don't know what's going on here, but I know who God is and I know who you are to him. And I know that all things are not good, but all things will work together to those who love him called according to his purpose, and that's you. That this puzzle piece looks completely irregular, looks like a dog chewed it. But if we'll just wait, You know, the death of Jesus was the worst act in the history of humanity. Now it is the greatest act in the history of humanity. If you'll just wait on it, can you trust God? That's called sympathy. Give somebody a perspective or encouragement. God is going to see you through this. You know, Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him until that day. I believed him. He can keep it forever. He's not going to fail me. And he wrote that from jail. Now, Theotus, can God see you through this? Then let's just wait on him. Just wait on him. Uh, Man creates watches. God creates time. You can't hold him to anything. Just wait. And know that I'm with you on this. Are you encouraged already? And so that's what It means to take somebody's core, their heart, and to encourage, to lift it up. You haven't given them answers. You've just given them perspective. Or to say about sympathy, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those. In any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves were comforted by God. Have you ever been through something? that you made it through, and then you see somebody else go through it, and you say, come here, I got something to say to you. You know, about 20 20 plus years ago, I had overworked, and I got hit by a clinical depression, and it took me out for four months. I just overworked. And, uh, you know, when you disappear from the pulpit for four months, you got to tell people where you are. You know, unless you're just on a serious vacation. Okay. And so I said, This is what happened to me. I got knocked out and I talked about it. Dallas Seminary heard me give my little deal here for about five minutes. They said, We need you to talk to the seminary. I went down to the seminary. And when I finished, Howard Hendricks said, I've been here since 1948. This is one of the five most effective chapels I've ever heard. When I finished talking about depression and anxiety that can hit anybody, uh, I had students lined up seven, eight deep wanting to talk. I had one seminary professor. was like a kid buying liquor, you know. He said, hey, look, he showed me his depression pills. <laughs> me too. We were like a... Uh, a fraternity of men that we've been through this. And then it went on Dobson. Then it went on, uh, what is it, Family Life. It went herbal, all right? (laughs) Or fungal, whatever. It, it It was out there. I'll bet you I have had 300 calls in these years from people all around that said, I read your book. How to walk on water when you think you're drowning. And I'm telling you, it changed my life. And all I did was be able to say, I've been there and you're going to make it too. And they just think that's wonderful. I made, wrote a book that's made, sold dozens of books out there. (laughs) All right. And it's just by saying, I've been there. And so there's something about it when somebody learns when you talk and somebody leans forward, you're thinking, that's a quality person. They've been there. They can feel this. When I was a young fellow, I was 23 years old, I had the privilege, just out of a quirk of circumstance, to have lunch with the greatest personal or PR guy in American history named John Van Cronkite of uh, Dallas, Texas. He got Kennedy elected, got LBJ lead. He just did all kind of stuff uh, in PR work. And he was about 80 plus. He died shortly thereafter. He had become a Christian and I had lunch with him with a buddy of mine. When you're in the presence of great men, you don't talk a lot. You listen. And I asked him, I said, Mr. Van Cronkite, I said, you're about three times older than me. What would you tell me about what you have learned about life? And he didn't stop and ponder on it. He didn't go, let me see. He said, I'm going to tell you right now. He said, the greatest possession that a human being has is his opinion. And when somebody tells you what they think, you lean forward and you look at them and you listen to them and you communicate to them the highest degree of humility and respect and intelligence. He said, I made a career out of listening to people. He said, the guy that gives an answer before he hears, no one says, boy, what a brilliant guy. They think, what an arrogant human being. And so he said, you learn to listen. And that's why I've been married for 48 years today. Okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> And so, if you want friends, you be reliable and have a work ethic, and you be somebody that when people talk, you give a darn about what they feel. He that giveth an answer before he hears. It is folly and a shame. You learn to listen. And you look at another verse here, in verse 26. The righteous, you've got something else to give besides an ear. You've got a mouth, and you have knowledge that they don't have. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor, because a righteous man knows something that his neighbor doesn't know. The righteous man knows the absolute truth of the will of God. This is what is right, and he is a guide. He doesn't just listen and comfort he says, now, you listen to me. I've listened to you. Now you listen to me. The way of the wicked leads them astray. How many of you, when you sent your kids to college, you said, now listen, you be careful about what they're telling you. You be careful about your roommates. You be careful about your college. Because a collegiate group of those under 20 are the stupidest human beings in Western civilization. Okay. Okay. You be careful of untested ideas, which is what is all around you. But he that walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. And so the way of the wicked leads men astray. But the righteous is a guide. We know what the world wishes they know. For instance, is there a little question out there? And the imminency of death as to where I will go on the other side. Knowing that I can't find somebody to come back and tell me. But I need somebody as I face death to give me a guide. Do you remember uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah after leaving Jerusalem? God takes Philip. Puts him on the road and says, Go join that carriage. And he runs up, and the guy is reading Isaiah 53. Philip, seeing a possible opening for the gospel, he says, Do you understand what you're reading? You know what that dear non Christian said? How can I unless somebody guides me? No, I don't understand this. Do you? Does the prophet speak of himself or of another? And beginning with that passage, Philip spoke to him of Jesus, and the eunuch said, "What prevents me from being baptized? Look, water. How about it?" And so I had a buddy. I didn't have a buddy. I had a hero named Cornelius Van Til, the great one of the one of my favorite theologians. He his wife died. He went like all old, old guys went down to Florida, and he goes to Florida and he lives in a retirement village. And there was a Catholic retirement village right up the street from him. And Cornelius Van Til, he was the guy that was the chief professor at Princeton before it went liberal, was Cornelius Van Til. And he would walk up the street to that uh, Catholic retirement center and go get him a cup of coffee and sit. And he would talk to his fellow old guys that they had been through the 20th century together. And he would say to them, you know, you and I are both on the stretch run. I am waiting for the arms of Jesus and the face of the Father. How about you? And then he would ask them a question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he would say to you, why would I let you into your, my heaven? What would you say to him? That's called a diagnostic question. You can't just say yes or no. You've got to know the answer. If I asked one of y'all, what would you say if you stood before God? You would answer me in a millisecond, but you wait for a pause. And he would ask them that question. And a lot of them would say, well, you know, I, I think I'd be in heaven. And why do you think that? Because I have done all of the sacraments. Well, I hadn't done them all. Well, I've done very few of them, but I think Mary would pray for me. And yes, okay. And he would say, may I tell you exactly what the Bible says about your salvation? And he said often he would have those say, "Now I'll wait for a priest. But often they would stop him and say, yes, I would like to know. And he would tell them about God, the creator and man in his sin and God giving his word and the word fulfilled in Jesus who died on a cross and rose that we could be saved. And so his job was to walk in front of the gate into eternity and just patrol for people in their final hour that didn't know him. That was his job. I have known of guys that work in emergency clinics and often find people whose life is in the balance who lean down and whisper to them, if you do not awake, where will you be? And then talk to them. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor. I'm so thankful to that guy named Jerry Cook that marched around our athletic dorm for 40 days and prayed that God would open a door that came in and asked people if they'd like to hear about Jesus Christ. And why my roommate said, yes, I still don't know. But I came in and sat and listened and got saved. And before he died, I called him and I thanked him because he became a guide to his neighbor. It goes like this. Uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Son, the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey what I have taught you. And so you convert them, you teach them, you train them, and you lead them. You can make a contribution eternally to a human being's life by giving them the highest thing. And that is truth, infinite truth on the most important areas. And so, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor. Show you something else. Just keep your finger there and look over at Romans 15. As Paul ends the book of Romans, he lets these people know that he wrote not because he was fearful of them, but in Romans 15, 15, I have, very, very, I have written very clearly to you on some point so as to remind you again. Do Christians need to hear it again and again? We do. He said, I, I wrote to remind you because in verse 14, I'm convinced of what good fellows you are. This verse 14 became a verse that was the impetus of an entire um, scheme of counseling that came about in about the 1960s. Rosie, you familiar with Jay Adams? He started what was called neuthetic counseling that came from one word in this verse. Um, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you are full of goodness, you're filled with all knowledge, and are able to admonish, or counsel one another. That word, therefore admonish, is the word "neutheo, noose the mind. Titheme," to place in it. Counseling all through the 20th century was not really didactic, or imparting knowledge. It was reflective. I hate my mother. Sounds like you hate your mother. Why do you hate your mother? Because she's hateable. All right. Now we're getting someplace. What makes you want to hate her and what would you do? It's reflective. You're not trying to lead a person to truth. You're trying to lead a person psychoanalytically into themselves. That's how counseling changed. That man is not determined by what's outside of him, but by what is inside of him. By his superego, his ego, and his id. Anybody? Don't worry. Okay. That's Freud. And so it completely changed counseling. That you didn't impart truth. That was negative. Nobody knew the truth. You got a person to discover himself. There was a counselor out of Princeton named Jay Adams. And he was an old fundamentalist Presbyterian. And he had been through Skinner. And he had been through all the other counselors. And he had seen the failure that they were doing. And he took this verse. That who is the person that is able to new Theo? To put something in your mind that you don't know. And thus can counsel you. As a matter of fact, if you had a... Uh, Oh, I forget what Bible it is. It says, you are competent to counsel. And that was the book he wrote called Competent to Counsel. It hit the press when I was a young Christian. And so he says in 14, I'm convinced that you yourselves are competent to tell somebody else what they don't know. And all you have to have is two things. You have to have in verse 14, to be filled with knowledge. You better know the truth. Amen. Don't be peddling what you don't know. You have an impartation of God in the Bible about creation, man, evil, redemption, right, wrong, marriage, government, church, religion, politics, morality, sexuality, business, honesty, 10 commandments. We've got, comes down to 613 commandments in the Old Testament, all about the same thing, loving God and loving your neighbor. We've got truth. And so if you are filled with knowledge, but you better be full of goodness. You can't be peddling unapplied truth. If you're doing this, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. If you know this and you can teach this, then you are competent to counsel. Isn't that good? You and I have the ability to take people struggling in marriage, struggling with sin, struggling with guilt, struggling with children, struggling with life, struggling with disease, struggling with what they don't understand. And we as Christians with a Bible are the people that have the authority and if we're obedient ourselves, the consistency to be able to sit down with them and say, talk to me, talk to me. Can I tell you what the Bible says? Can I tell you what subjectively has been true for me in my life? And it'll be true for you. And if I can call a couple of people in here, come here, Sally, Cletus, come here. It's true for them too. As a matter of fact, it was true for Abraham Lincoln and true for Cornelius Van Til. And it's going to be true for you. You think you can do this? I've been taught the opposite for 40 years. God can change you. We can change people. Amen. The righteous is a guide you've got something to say. If you know it and if you've lived it, you've got something to say. And so, how do you win friends and influence people? You're a great work ethic. Elevate that man. Verse 25, you're likable. You listen when they talk. Verse 26, you've got something to say. All right? That's why we had in our church for a while a woman named uh, Mrs. Joy Brown. How many of you know Joy Brown? W.L. Brown's wife, Joy. She was in her mid 80s. She was converted like her third month of pregnancy, I think. She was prenatal conversion. Okay. And she came to know Christ, went to John Brown University, met W.L. She had met uh, Harry Ironside. She had heard uh, Lewis Schaefer, Dr. S.L. L- L- S- L Johnson. She had heard everybody plumb near back to Dwight Moody that taught Bible. And they had walked with God all of their days. And I asked her one time. I said, "Joy." you know, have you had the, she had written a book called The Glory of God. And I said, have you had uh, some girls you've been able to spend time with? Because you have, she buried a daughter through cancer. Uh, She had a boy, adopted him, This the best of all boys that was the, uh, uh, let's see, he was the, one of the leaders of, a radio free Europe, got the gospel to Europe. And every, everything she touched was just magic. Marvelous mother, marvelous wife. And I said, What girls are you teaching? And she said to me, Oh, I'm, I'm not quite ready. <laughs> and I said, If you're not ready, no one can teach if the standard's that high. I said, Joy, You've forgotten more than everybody else knows about life. I turned to her husband WL. Isn't that right, WL? Yep. He was taking a snap at the time. And I went to Barbara McGee, that was over our women's ministry, and I said, I don't want joy in any more Bible studies. That's all. I don't want on her, I don't care if Isaiah is teaching. I don't want Joy in that Bible study anymore. We are gonna harvest this woman. She knows her husband was classified in World War II. He started something called Radar on Quadulent Island, and she was there. And so I said, we're gonna get her mind before she dies. And so I said, get ready, Joy, in September, you're on. (laughs) <laughs> let me put on that. <laughs> and she started preparing in about April. And she had these volumes of stuff she was going to lay on these girls. And so we got her some girls, about five of them. They were called the Brownies. Her name was Joy Brown. And they became a cultic group in the church. All right. And I asked her a couple of months, I said, How's it been going? Have you, have you gotten any of your material? No. All they want to talk about is sex. <laughs> and she could embarrass you. And so when we on a trip to Israel, all of her little brownies were on the trip. And uh, they were all picking up rocks because she ordered them, no matter where you go, find a rock, bring it back, and I will begin this collection of rocks where my girls have gone in the holy land. And uh, when she passed away, that was her greatest chief joy, was imparting what she had learned. Psalm 71, do not forsake me, O Lord, until I make thy name known to the generation to come. And so she did. Uh, I'll tell you something a little interesting. I've been reading a book. Uh, It's called The Modern Mind by Peter Watson. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but he takes the history of ideas that shape humanity. And in the 20th century, we made a very decided movement from God. We fired God and we installed science. All right. Science can go so far. Once you get outside of the empirical about the soul of man, the creation of man, the nature of man, the nature of right, wrong, evil, the soul, conscience, the meaning of family, the meaning of morality, the meaning of man. Science can just talk about joints and corpuses. That's all it can do. It can't go beyond that. God has to tell you about meaning. Amen. That's why theology is called the queen of sciences. Uh, Adam is created and all he sees is God. And then God walks him at the cool of the day and explains to him all the finite diversity. These are animals. This is a star. This is dirt. This is seed. This is plant. This is a tree. And he understands it in the light of God. He knows the infinite. And so all of the distinctives are crystal clear. He can see them. Uh, in the 20th century... It's another sermon for another day. We got rid of God, and we put science in its place. And the greatest authority became not now the Bible. It became they. You know what they say? What? Well, they say there is no God. Good night, really? I thought there was. Yeah, they say there isn't. Who are they? Nobody knows. But that's what they say. Who'd they get it from? They got it from those other guys. They They told them, and they told us, and we know. It ain't real, and I heard it on channel four. And so, what he does is he starts with Sigmund Freud, that was the first guy, he was an atheistic Jew, that felt all God was, was man's projection onto nature, his own imaginings of a perfect father figure. And that is what God was. God didn't create man, man created God. Okay, he had it all figured out. And now you have to start explaining conscience, will, right, wrong, morality. Well, you have a basic primitive nature, your ick, your id. And then you have the, what culture tells you, the superego, and you reconcile the two. And what you present to man is your falsehood, which is ego. Okay, there. And so it all starts going down. And as you read the book, there's probably 5,000 names in the book, none of which you know, because they're the guys behind thought that brought it in. And you look at the arts, you look at Hollywood, you look at uh, publishing, at writers, at politicians, at um, discoverers. At scientist, at physicist, and he takes you through World War I through two, and on to present day, to feminism, to the Islamic rise. And God is never mentioned in the book, and that's by purpose, because we've abandoned God. The problem when you abandon God is you've got to invent another one. No one will live without something. And so we see now the decline and the twilight. Of the gods going down until by the time you get to the end and you are in complete Joseph Conrad's, oh, the horror, the horror, descent into darkness. But as I read it, very enjoyable read, okay, I couldn't relate to it, not completely. You know why? Because I'm a Christian. And so you would read it, and you would see this commode disappearing continually. You'll remember that illustration. You remember this swirly, this thunder mug, all right? And it's going down always. And yet the Christian, all right, uh, let no one delude you with persuasive words. Uh, Paul said, for Christ is the epitome of knowledge. If you know Christ, you know who God is. You know what man should be. You know what right is. You know what wrong is. You know what the family should be. What government should be. You know what the workplace should be. What commerce should be. That he is the fullness of deity and a body. And in him you've been made complete. You've been baptized by uh the circumcision of your body by the be- circumcision of Christ having died and risen from the dead it's like you are noah on the ark rising above the judgment and then when it's all gone you set back down again that's why you see in the christian it's like uh we're in the days of noah and the ark of salvation rises up as everything goes downward but we're able to sit down on it and understand it at the end of the book of Revelation, the whole world is gone. And the new heavens and new earth comes down from heaven and rest on it. You dig? And so we're never in despair. We never have those questions. I never want to become a furry. I never need to become transgender. I never need to declare my gender. I am who I am because of an infinite personal God. I know what I am, what right is, what wrong is, how to get there, how to know it, how to be forgiven, the hope of salvation and the anticipation of His second coming. If Christianity's not true, it should be because it's the only truth that can survive. Amen. And that's what makes us distinctive. And so, we have got something to say. And then if you'll look at verse 27, you have to earn the right to say it. A lazy man does not roast his prey. He would like to eat, but he can't bridge the gap between his desire and his getting it done. Desire And doneness, he can't do it because he can't move his posterior points in a transmissible action whereby your longings can become reality. That means he can't get his tail in gear. Okay. He has druthers of how he would like to be, but he can't move from initial inertia, from a dream to a plan to an initiative, a perseverance, and an attainment. He can't do it. And that's why it says the precious possession of a man is diligence, that he gets it done, that he's a success. He sees what he wants a marriage to be. He works at it, he is diligent, and he comes as close as he can. He knows what a business should be, he dreams it. He initiates it. He plans it. He works at it. He struggles and he attains it. The precious possession of a man is diligence. I am a great believer in all of my ancient years of human existence. That talent without diligence is worth nothing. Brains without diligence is like a gun without a firing pin. It's useless. Uh, Privilege and breeding without diligence and character is really worth nothing. It's a pop that never goes off. I am so thankful that when I was raised, uh, our mother... My mother should have been Douglas MacArthur. That's who she was in another life. But she let us all four boys know, if you're gonna be something, you better be able to get you a degree and have a ticket. And you're not gonna get one around here. You better find a way to get a scholarship. So first one became a trombone player. Second one became one of the great athletes in the history of the 20th century. Third born became a music teacher. Fourth born became a third baseman for the Texas Rangers. And we all got our degrees, and my mother would not let us quit. When you started, she'd say, are you sure? You don't have to do this. Are you sure you want to do it? I am. Well, this is four months. You got to finish because that team depends on you. You don't miss practices. You don't come late. We never took a vacation because it always interrupted sports. One time we went to Carlsbad Caverns, just let my daddy see the uh, bats fly. And then we got in the car and drove on back home. <laughs> that was all the while. But that was, that was the highest of evils of your starting what you did not finish or your not being the best. I remember making a D in English. Can't imagine why. But I made a D and I remember hiding from my mother, which is hard in a house with 900 square feet. But I stayed in the one room with a door on it, and uh, her just walking in like Bela Lugosi, up from the dead. What is this? That's a D. Yeah, it's a D, as in dog. Are you this good? Is that all you got? Uh, you know,'. Don't you ever bring me in a D. No, ma'am, I. Said, and I didn't make a D till I got to college. But I'm so glad that was the heat she put on us. You don't have to be nothing, but you better be what you can be. And we can't take less. And so we did. She would let you quit Boy Scouts. If, if you got to be a tenderfoot, you didn't have to go be second class. If you got second class, you didn't have to go to first class. But if you started tenderfoot, you had to get tenderfoot. I got tenderfoot. To be second class, you had to walk 25 miles. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> so I didn't make it. But uh, with God... Uh, He creates a creation on the sixth day. He says, it's finished. Jesus, six hours on the cross, it's finished. Paul, at the end of his ministry, I fought the good fight, kept the faith, finished the course. Salvation, whom he foreknew, he predestined, predestined, he called, called, justified, justified, glorified. Not one perish. He does it. The Spirit of God inspires the Bible, illumines the Bible. You read it reproof, correction, training that the man of God may be adequate, it finishes. God is a God that has a dream then puts it into time and space and gets it done to his glory. And that's the way humans are supposed to live, where they take what God has given them, what God has bestowed on them, and they make an impact. Well, if you look here at the very end of the verse, in the way of righteousness, this verse 25 says, or 24 through 28, in this way, there is, what's your last word? Life. It's the way life is meant to be lived. That's why, Steve, when I would read this book, I would just say, I cannot. I love reading it, but I can't relate. Because this guy doesn't have a God who is Trinity with an incarnation perfect life, substitutionary death, rebirth, and a second coming. And so he's out there trying to find one. And so in this way, there is life, and in its pathway, you never have to worry. There is no death. God will not lead you astray. This is how we build our institutions. When Boy Scouts was started, I remember having to memorize a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. That was the Boy Scout oath it was built on God. A guy named Baden Powell started it. You know what the Boy Scout sign is? Uh, with a circle, and a red dot, means you've gone home. And that's what they put on his gravestone. Baden Powell, I've gone home. Uh, Whenever you get in court, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? So help you God. I do. On a military academy, I will not lie, cheat, or steal, or endure those who do. So help me God. You can't have the military built on anything but that. Whenever you get married, well, having to hold from this day forward, better for worse, sickness or in health, richer for poorer, And forsaking all others, I will keep you only unto myself, so long as we both shall live in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You build homes on that. You, I solemnly swear to preserve, to protect, and defend this Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So help me, God. That's what countries are built on. You take away God from a culture, the home, uh, religion, the church, the government, the workforce is going down. Only if you're on the ark can you rise above it. Let's have communion. Father in heaven, as we stop for just a moment and remember where we came from. As Israel in the desert would celebrate Passover and never forget the springtime when they came out of death into life. Forever in that land of milk and honey, they would always stop at springtime and remember and tell their kids there was a day that we were in bondage and in darkness, but God by his favor and his promises took us out by the weakest of all things, the blood of a lamb. And we were led forth by a cross on our door and led into the promised land. Lord, I pray that you would be precious to our souls. That as we learn and grow and deepen and hopefully develop and serve, we would never get beyond... That most basic and precious of all truths, that the second person of the Trinity took to himself humanity and lived a life in humiliation like we must, and submitted himself finally to death on a cross, as we deserved, and rose in power and ascends. And has been given the authority of God to bring about his plan as the last Adam. To bring about a new race of creation. And that we are part of that. And someday we will go to be with him. And then he will come for us. In a world without end. We'll never forget that. If we forget all of our studies and all of our exams, we're okay. But we will never forget forget that. If Alzheimer's takes our memory, we will still always remember I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him. We will simply remember him, him, him. And that's all we need. So as we recollect this morning, bless us and draw near. In Jesus' name, amen.